Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannon. Hey, 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 everybody. Hey. What's up, everybody? Y'all ready for a new episode of the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast on this chilly evening? I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all keeping warm. And let's get things started here. Welcome to a still frozen episode of the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast, episode 26, broadcasting to you from Blog Talk Radio around the world. Coming to you from beautiful and frozen Summit, New Jersey, I'm your host, Mike Gannon. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and enjoying the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast. Tonight, we are live for all of you aquatically obsessed. See, I'm so cold, I can't even talk. And uh, I'm glad you guys are here and part of the show. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm so happy to be here with you keeping my mind off of this ridiculously cold, cold, cold weather. We have a really great show in store for you tonight to warm you guys up. But that's nothing new. This is episode 26. There's 26 great shows for you guys to tune into whenever you want, wherever you want. You can find all of the Pond Hunter radio broadcast on iTunes, and you can find it at blogtalkradio.com slash thepondhunter. Um, It's really a great way to enjoy the show. You can enjoy it on your smart device of choice, like your phone, your desktop, your tablet, however you want to do it. You can enjoy the show, whatever you're doing, walking the dog, working out in the office. You can crank it for your friends. I'm sure they'll love you for that. So there you go. Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast is a great way to make new friends and impress the ones you have. And um, hey, while you're on iTunes or blog talk radio, give me a follow. Leave me a comment. Let me know you guys are there. I'd be happy to hear from you guys as always. So um, again, thanks for being here tonight. And we are slowly but surely working our way out of winter and into spring. And tonight, in honor of thinking about spring, we have a great show in store for you. Um, Ellen Klubeck is going to be with us tonight, everybody. We're going to be talking a bit about koi, and we're going to focus on the gosanke varieties, the big three of koi varieties, kohaku, showa, sanke. And Ellen is not just a koi expert. Uh, Ellen's family business is koi farming and breeding. Klobeck Koi Farm um, has been breeding and growing koi for a long time. Klobeck is one of America's premier breeders of champion koi and one of the largest suppliers of koi and pond supplies in the United States. They're located in Iowa, so I'm sure it's pretty cold there, too. And Ellen will be with us here tonight to discuss the Gosanke and a bit about koi farm operations, too. 
which are fascinating to me. I love um, the idea of koi farms. I've never uh, really seen a full production of a koi farm. I've visited a few here and there. So hopefully we'll get some um, highlights on those kind of things. So stick around for some great information, you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I've met Alan a couple times. She's a really great lady, and I'm so happy to have her here with us tonight to share with us. It's going to be a good time. So uh, I hope you guys caught the last episode, too. On the last episode of the PHRB, I had another really cool guest on, Tim Waddington from Quality Koi over in England called into the show. Uh, Quality Koi is a top supplier of Japanese koi, select premium Japanese koi, um, selling award-winning koi selections around the world. Tim called in, and he was talking to us about concrete pond construction. Tim designs and installs amazing concrete ponds. He is a world-class concrete pond designer. And I had him here on the PHRB giving us his tips on how to create a successful concrete pond. Not easy stuff just to go and build a concrete pond. Not easy at all. And uh, I am not an expert on concrete pond construction. I've built hundreds of ponds over the last 20 years or so. Um, but I had tons of questions for him. Mostly what I've done is um, <laughs> ripped out and renovated concrete ponds. But those were ponds that were not done correctly. So I figured it was high time to get some good information uh, from one of the masters himself. And um, Tim Waddington was gracious enough to spend some time with us. And if you guys want to check that out, it's episode 25 um, of the PHRB. And you can hear Tim Waddington talk about concrete ponds. It was really a great show. Uh, great information. And thank you, Tim, for sharing your expertise with us during this winter season. On the next PHRB, we're going to be super optimistic. We're going to start talking about spring. You guys remember spring, right? Remember that time of year? I'm sure you do. Um, we're going to be talking about spring, and spring is that wonderful season that follows what we are currently enduring. Um, and it really, you know, has not been that long. Um, it's going to be on the next PHRB. We're going to be discussing spring pond care. And there's a lot of things that need to be done during spring. Lots of tasks, chores, uh, considerations, lots of preparation. And I am having a guest expert on to share his expertise on this topic. Jason Turpin will be joining me. Jason is owner of Turpin Brothers Pond Source. Turpin Pond Source in Pennsylvania, here in the United States. Turpin Brothers are professional pond installers, service providers, um, among other landscaping offers. And we're going to be going into depth on what you need to know to open your pond for a successful spring season. Um, spring, which is going to help set you up for a successful summer season. So, um, you know, spring pond care is really, really important. Probably the most important service and um, part of the season. So don't miss this episode. Be sure to catch episode 27 of the Pond Hunter radio broadcast on spring pond care with Jason Turpin from Turpin Pond Source. I'm looking forward to that. Jason's a friend of mine, and I think you guys are considering and listening to it. So I hope you all uh, tune in. 
and I will look forward to speaking with him as well. So how's everybody doing? How's everybody's pond doing? With listeners all over the world, I'm sure your ponds are in every stage of running right now. I know some of you aren't even experiencing winter at this point, but in the Northeast United States, where I am in, in New Jersey, and for much of the United States, for that matter, um, we're still in a pretty deep freeze, unusual freezing, very low, sustained sub-freezing temperatures. Um, even here in the States, areas like Texas, Florida, Georgia, and uh, other southern states, they're getting freezing conditions, snowy conditions. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, and even now, as we speak, my pond is frozen completely. I can't even see my waterfall anymore. It's completely iced over, has a covering of ice over it. It's still running, but it's frozen. Um, my pond has a thick skin of ice, and I have not seen my fish since mid-January. Um, and I really hope they're doing well. I'm pretty confident that they are. Uh, why am I so confident? I'm confident because I set up my pond for success, and I monitor and enjoy my pond even in deep winter. And because I'm running my pond system, my de-icer, and aerator, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and aerator, those are all, uh, they're just, they're running just fine. So my pond is frozen. It looks amazing. And I can still listen to my waterfall, even if I can't see it. That's one of the biggest reasons I love the Aquascape pond system that I'm using. I can run it year round, even when things get extreme. I love it. Love it. And, uh, what I've been doing a lot of since I can't see my fish is watching who is visiting my pond at this time of year. I've always had lots of birds visiting all times of the year. Right now I see a lot of small birds, songbirds, cardinals. Um, could even be the same cardinals I'm seeing, but I've had a lot of cardinal activity. No blue herons, thankfully, um, but their season's coming. And there's a lot of squirrel activity, deer, and some tracks I just can't identify. Something's coming out of the woods to use my pond, break the surface of the snow with their tracks, but they're not big, but I don't know what the heck they are. Um, but still, I can't wait for spring when everybody gets to see um, and use the pond again. So think spring, everybody. Think spring. I know pond professionals are thinking spring. The Water Garden Expo is happening as we speak in Shawnee, Oklahoma. The Water Gardening Expo is for pond pros. And uh, from around the country, they're out there right now at this expo, networking, learning, and making themselves and their businesses better to serve their customers better. And the expo is happening today and tomorrow. Here's a big shout out to all the pond pros who made the trip to the WGE. Get psyched, pond pros. Our season is coming just around the corner. And they are not alone. The koi and water garden hobbyists are chomping at the bit too. The, um, let's see. The Sandia, you know what? We have some announcements. I'm going to get to the announcements in a little while. Um, there's a couple announcements there I'm going to look out for you guys. And that way you guys can mark your calendars. But, um, you know, with all this talk about ponds and everything, let's let's get Ellen Klobeck on here. Ellen is certainly no stranger to the koi um, industry, and she's going to be coming right up, everybody, to talk about the Gosanke varieties of koi and some fish farming insight as well, uh, and maybe even get some feedback on koi shows. Ellen will be coming up right after a word from our sponsor, Full Service Aquatics. Do you love your pond? Full Service Aquatics Water Garden and Koi Pond experts can give you a pond you can live with. Full Service Aquatics. 
An award-winning water garden, koi pond, and water feature design and installation firm has been creating amazing aquatic environments since 1995. Got waterfall? Full-service aquatics can make your old waterfall or pond look like new with our waterfall, koi pond, and water garden renovation and repair services. Visit FullServiceAquatics.com or call 908-277-6000 to speak with a full-service aquatics pond professional today. That's FullServiceAquatics.com or 908-277-6000. Full-Service Aquatics, a pond you can live with. Visit LoveYourPond.com. Full Service Aquatics is celebrating 20 years of designing, installing, and servicing water gardens, water features, and koi ponds. Welcome back, everybody. You know, there's a good chance if you're listening to the show, you already own koi. <clears throat> Maybe your pond already has a great selection of varieties. And these days, there are many varieties of koi for pond keepers to choose from, and more varieties being created uh, by koi artists all the time. The majority of koi var- varieties are that are available today to us uh, were not around 50, 60 years ago. For a lot of koi enthusiasts, keeping track of varieties and knowing what variety koi you have can get a little confusing. And some koi really aren't any specific variety at all. They're they're mutts, generic koi. Um, Learning how to truly identify koi varieties may also keep you from spending money on koi that are not what you think or not what they're advertised to be. However, learning about all the different varieties and how to identify them is tricky and takes some real dedication and time. And what does the typical hobbyist do when they want to learn about different koi varieties? They Google it and they find a koi chart. Have you guys seen these? Um, I mean, they're helpful, but they can be so overwhelming too. Sometimes you feel like you're not really getting anywhere. So I think the best way to learn to identify the difference in developing koi varieties is to start with the more basic groupings. Gain an understanding, move forward with your passion for koi. Starting point for many koi enthusiasts would be to understand the grouping of the Gosanke variety, varieties. Gosanke itself is not a variety. It's a broad term used to describe what are referred to as the big three in koi varieties, the big three being Kohaku, Showa, and Sanke. The Gosanke. Loosely translated, Gosanke means three families. I consider this a great starting point because from the big three, a platform is now there to launch into understanding the numerous other varieties of koi, many of which have been developed from the Gosanke. And uh, tonight, we're going to be getting into this topic with my guest, Ellen Klobeck. Ellen and Myron Klobeck are the owners of Klobeck Koi, a koi farm and breeding facility which boasts championship koi from their facilities. Klobeck Koi is a family business located in Iowa, that has been in business for about 30 years now. It's an 80-acre facility that, to me, kind of looks like a North American version of Niigata, Japan. And uh, Ellen has been involved with all aspects of koi, from selecting, breeding, showing, judging, and uh, educating. She is a true koi professional and even a hobbyist. And I'm very happy to have Ellen on the show tonight as my guest and looking forward to hearing her expertise Ellen, are you on the line? Yes, I'm here. I don't know if I can live up to all that, though. Oh, well, you already have. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I couldn't introduce you that way. (laughs) How are you? How are you doing, Ellen? Thanks so much. Yeah, I bet. Are you out in Iowa right now, or are you on the road? (laughs) No, no, I'm back at home in Iowa. It's nice and snowy and blustery. 
Yeah, I bet. I mean, what a winter we're having so far. It's still very frozen here in New Jersey, and I'm I'm ready for spring. I'm ready to see my koi again. And uh, thank you. Again. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Um, you know, we we met some years ago. I've I've met you and Myron at various industry events and koi shows. And uh, I know that you can be on the road a lot, and you attend a lot of shows around the country. Um, do you have a favorite show that you go to? It's getting to be that time of year, right? Uh, yeah. Not so much a favorite show as um, uh, favorite clubs, I guess. I, I think the MPKS, the Chicago Club, would probably be our favorite because we kind of feel like that's our home show, our home group, closest, uh, um, you know, that's out of state. Yeah. We were we were just in Chicago this last weekend to a, a club uh, meeting and event there and, and uh, gave a talk on Hakari varieties there. Oh, very nice. I bet it's just brutally cold there too. I mean it, it's Yeah, uh, it wasn't too bad. So it was uh it was above freezing a little bit, so it wasn't uh you know, too bad, but being from the Midwest we're kind of used to it, so Yeah, sure. I guess the Chicago area is probably used to some brutal conditions also. But um, mm-hmm. do you ever do any judging at, at the shows that you go to? Um, no, because um, I, I I cannot be a judge because I am uh, in the business of koi production. So um, it's a conflict of interest. I, I couldn't actually be a koi judge. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get that. So if one of your koi show up, you know, that'd be hard to uh, be partisan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What Although do you do? we do have what a lot do? of uh, we do have a lot of fish that show that um, you know win awards that show, but they're owned by hobbyists, and and we're always happy to see the um, our customers bring our koi back and enter them in shows. Sometimes they buy them at the shows and and enter them and and earn awards that way. Yeah, I mean that that's still judging or not has got to bring a lot of satisfaction to you um as the breeder and grower and that that's got to be a lot of fun to see that that level of success happening with your with your babies that you're getting out there into the world. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, know? it's it's always fulfilling when when one of our fish gets an award. Yeah. And how do you keep busy during the winter months? I know you're back in Iowa now, but I gotta think there's probably no shortage of work to be done on a koi farm, even during winter. Oh yeah, and not so much with the fish, but maintaining things. Um, it's snow removal, of course. Um, yep. Ox- um, monitoring oxygen in the ponds. Uh, we have some fish that we keep indoors in um, some of the greenhouses over winter, um, a smaller amount compared to what we usually have throughout the season. So there is some work to be done. Um, but it is kind of considered our slow season. Sure. Yeah. And with 80 acres, and how many ponds do you have on your on your um, on the farm? Well, that changes all the time. <laughs> we have okay. 50 something, um, but when the guys are renovating the ponds. Uh, sometimes they'll, uh, because they, we have big earth-moving equipment, excavators, bulldozers, um, and sometimes when they're renovating ponds, they'll split ponds, um, divide them. So it's always in the 50-something numbers, 
but it, it changes often. I think right now we have 56. Okay. Yeah, so 56, give or take, depending on the year. And what mm-hmm. what would, how often, does a pond have a certain lifespan that requires you to renovate it, or is it just more a matter of just internal decisions within your facility that you're renovating certain ponds? Um, both. Um, some years a pond can be used as a nursery pond for stocking little baby fry, which are three days old. Um, and then once those are harvested, it, it can be you know used as a grow-out pond. And then in that case, there's a lot more feed and a waste that you know builds up in the pond. So depending on the use of the the mud pond. Um, will require renovation, um, so we can turn it over and use it use it again the following year. Okay, so each pond is designated for a certain um, use, whether it's growing yeah. out or, or whatever the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many people does it take to to run uh, an eighty acre koi farm? Um, we have. Uh, six full-time, and uh, three seasonal part-time, sometimes four seasonal. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good operation. <laughs> now, you had mentioned some fish are kept indoors. What? Which fish would that be, and why? Why would you bring them indoors for the wintertime? Um, some of our breeder fish we keep indoors um, for protection, of course. And... Um, and, and then we keep um, some of the, the fish that are available for sale online. Those we have to keep indoors so that they're available, you know, 24-7. And, um, and then we keep a smaller amount. I think we may have about 15,000 uh, fingerlings or uh, tosai available that we will start using as wholesale fish first thing in the spring. Okay. Now, when you are... Um, choosing your 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 breeder, your parent koi. Are you? Is this a Japanese stock, or, or have you basically just gotten to the point where you're breeding your own even um, breeding stock? Um, both. Uh, a lot of our parent fish are um, are fish that I've hand selected in Japan, um, and then some are offspring of those um, that we retain as breeder fish also. So I have a mix of of, uh, of breeder fish that we use. Okay. And how often do you go over to Japan? Um, I've only been over two times. I'd love to go again um, this spring, um, although I, it depends on how busy we're going to be. I, I don't know if I'll be able to go over again this spring. Yeah. I've never been... That's on my on my short list. It's one of the places I'd really love to go. I've, I've wanted to go for many, many years. And for whatever reason, the opportunity just has never really uh, presented itself to me. But, um, you know, I, I love watching all these different people who are going over. I, I, of course, can see these things through Facebook and stuff like that. And it just looks like it would be such a great experience to go over to the um, mm-hmm. to Japan. It must be just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, all, all your, all of your ponds are mud ponds. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then after 
spawning, I think, you know, one of the processes that you guys go through, I guess every uh, breeder and farm would go through is the culling process, which to me also is pretty fascinating. It, it seems like a very intense um, job that really must take a lot of expertise. Who uh, does the culling for you for your fish? Um, Myron and I and Nick and Holly do most of the culling on the farm. Um, we're okay. training um, one of our seasonal gals um, to help out, and she's um, she's made great strides in, in learning the varieties and what to look for in specific fish. But generally, it's uh, Myron and I and Nick and Holly that do most of the culling. Right. It's just fascinating to me. I've seen videos of people doing culling and, and, you know, sometimes people just fly through it. They can, they can call just one after another really quick. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, I would think in my mind, if, if I personally was doing it, it would take me so much longer to, to develop that eye to be able to just see them and know and and see the potential of these fish. That's, that's amazing that you guys do that. I, I, I love that. Um, with your mud ponds, do you guys do you guys do treatments for them at all as far as treating the mud itself prior to filling a pond? Is there any special um applications that you put into a pond or, or is it is the area that you're in um just good enough to be able to excavate and fill, so to speak? I I know it's a lot more involved than that. But are there any treatments or applications yeah. that you do? Yeah, in a nutshell, um, our our pond or our our farm is is clay, and it's very good water holding so, um, soil. And so, um, no, it's, it, we don't amend the soil much at all. Okay, that's great. Do you have to deal with predators at all? Oh yes. What do you have? Who who is stocking <laughs> your ponds? <laughs> Well, we have, you know, the the fish-eating birds. We also have um, um, otters um, and, believe it or not, um, frogs. Um, Frogs are um, very predacious on the small fry, Um, and and, uh, a lot of people like to have frogs in their their garden ponds, Um, but they, they really do consume a lot of small little fingerling fish really that's interesting mm-hmm. i mean i i know that they are predators i know they go after them i just was never really sure of, of how much damage they could do so it sounds like you know if you're talking about a typical backyard pond um you know like like mine maybe 25 by 15 and there's a couple of frogs in there i they could potentially keep me from even though my fish spawn every year they could keep me from from seeing babies Yes. Mhm. What do you do? Yes. Frog, do you have any... Frogs can eat up to um, frogs can eat up to koi that are four inches in length. Wow. Okay. Yep. That's not good. But I do love the frogs. No. <laughs> I know. We. I like to hear them. I like to listen to them croaking. Do you have any tips on um, trying to control predators? That's that's always something that I think every pond owner has to deal with, no matter what kind of pond you have, no matter where you're located. Um, it seems like everybody has a predator at some point. What are, what are some of the things that you guys do mm-hmm. to keep the, keep the predators at bay? 
um, really just trapping. Um, we have, um, you know, we trap for um, four-legged animals. Um, we have um, bird deterrents that are like um, uh, kites. We also have uh, air cannon um, that the air cannons that go off during the summer. Um, the right. neighbors aren't really fond of those, but, uh, you know, it's uh, for the protection of our livestock. So, uh, And those go off um, uh, on a timer um, periodically, and, and that really helps. Yeah, those can be very effective. I remember visiting a winery one time, and they were using air cannons, and I, I mm-hmm. heard this huge boom and did see birds go flying everywhere. And uh, mm-hmm. that's the first time I ever was introduced to that. Seems very, very effective. Okay. Maybe not something I want to hook up to my backyard pond, but it's good to know that they work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when do things start ramping up for you guys? When does the season um, really begin for the farm? Oh, it should be within about a month or so here, um, depending on the weather. Um, but usually uh, mid to end of March we get rolling. We won't start spawning fish until usually the first part of May, Um, and our spawn goes usually um, through July. And then once we're done with the spawn, it's time to start culling, and uh, and then that takes us up until fall. Okay. Always something to do. And uh, go back and you guys ship worldwide? Um, not worldwide. We do um, ship a lot of our fish into Canada, although there's a lot of regulation that um, has to be followed. Um, our fish have to be inspected by an APHIS-certified veterinary that comes to our farm weekly during the season, um, which is a requirement of the uh, international shipping regulation. Um, and... Uh, you know that we have to follow through with and have all the completed paperwork to go uh, across the border um, to get our fish delivered in a timely fashion. It, you know it has to all be attached to the packages so it's there's smooth sailing and no no hiccups because you know you have live fish in the box. Yeah, there, there's a lot of um, a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of regulations that maybe sometimes purchasers are not aware of that you guys have to go through to actually get your your stock to their doorstep. Um, so that's, that's very interesting. So, and I also saw you guys sell koi on eBay. You guys do the auctions where koi enthusiasts and hobbyists can bid on the koi of their choice. Yes, mm-hmm. we sell on eBay and then also on our on our own website. Okay, is that a popular way to buy fish? I have not ever done an auction on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the fish that you um, are bidding on is the actual fish that you receive. It's not a representative photo, um, and so that's that's very time-consuming. Um, we photograph each individual fish or groups of fish, and so you're actually getting, you're going to receive the fish that you see in the photo. Interesting. And um, is there a most popular variety of koi out there that you see that people are looking for? Oh, well, the gosanke, the three, big three, are always popular. Um, Non-gosanke varieties of of the metallics 
are real popular. It just depends on on the hobbyist, what they're looking for, uh, and what they're collecting. Yeah. I always found it difficult to choose what type of koi. Um, I'd want my pond mostly because I I want them all. Uh, And it it also took me a long time to develop an eye for different koi varieties. And um, I often have customers ask me what kind of koi they have after they've already purchased the koi. Um, and I'm going to check out their ponds. And identifying koi is not necessarily easy. And I, I think probably one of the best ways for people to begin that process is by taking small bites. And um, you'd mentioned the gosanke, which is uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. In my opinion, that's probably one of the best starting points in that journey of being able to uh, develop an eye for koi appreciation and, and the different types. So, the Gosanki mm-hmm. are referred to as the big three. Um, mm-hmm. What varieties make up the big three? It would be Kohaku, Sanke, and Showa. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Kohake, so the Kohaku is a white fish, white-based fish, with the red or orange markings. These three okay. are all non-metallic um, varieties of koi. Okay. Now, and everybody says, you know, the journey of keeping koi begins and ends with kohaku. So let's let's focus on those as as kind of our starting point. You'd mentioned it's it's a white fish um, with red or or orange markings. Is mm-hmm. it is it preferably red or or does that really make a difference? Could it be red or orange? Um, it's either it can be either kind of a purple orange or purple-red, or an orange-red. Um, I prefer the orangish-red. Um, that's referred to as he, if it's kind of more purple-based or more orange-based. Either one, it's referred to as the he, or the he plates on the fish. Okay. And that's the best way to identify a kohaku. Um, kohaku. Now, if a... Koi has red and white coloration. Does that necessarily mean it's kohaku, or is there is there more to it than that? Um, no, basically it's it's the white white fish, non-metallic, with the red markings. Um, then you can get into all different pattern classifications or, or different names of the patterns, um, and and that's uh, I think a lot of times where people just they try to learn too many or too much at one time, and it gets overwhelming, and then they just feel frustrated with, with trying to learn too much at one time. Right, because there's two-step, three-step, four-step, uh, all these different type of um, patterns. And, mm-hmm. you know, to to just kind of keep, keep it really basic, um, where should, regardless of what the pattern is, when it comes to the colors, um, what should people be looking for? Where should the colors start? Where should they end? If you're looking for a, a kohaku, um, and am I saying that right, kohaku, or is it, is it kohaku? <laughs> Koh- well, kohaku. Okay. And <laughs> um, so what, should... what adds to everybody's frustration is is they're the Japanese terminology, the Japanese names, um, 
and um, and then you know that's just extremely frustrating. So my Japanese pr- pronunciation is okay as long as you know it's a New Jersey accent. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay, then I'm right on track. Um, with the colors, where where would the colors start on the fish? Where would they end? Where should those colors of the koaku be located? Okay. Um, and I, I want to um, let people know that regardless of how the koi fits into its definition or how close it comes to a perfect kohaku or whatever variety, as long as you like the fish and you enjoy the fish, that's what really is the most important Um, because not every fish can live up to the stringent guidelines or textbook markings. And so, um, you know, it's pretty hard to achieve a lot of these characteristics and and ideal patterns that are set forth. Um, And so as long as you like the fish and you enjoy the fish, that's what's most important. Um, But basically on a kohaku, you want a nice, clean, white base. And like I said, it's non-metallic. So that means that the white is the actual Japanese word is shiroji for the white base. And you want a clean, white base. That makes your red or the heat plates stand out nicely, regardless of what color the the red is, if it's a purpley red or an orangish red. If the base is nice and bright and white, clean white, it's going to, you know, everything looks really good on that. So on a kohaku, you really want to look for a clean white base. Um, ideally, you want the the red or the he to start on the head and continue throughout the body of the fish. Um, if it's a broken pattern, um, you, you would like to see a break before the dorsal fin and hopefully a break after the dorsal. The dorsal is the top fin on the back of the fish. But there again, okay. it's preference. And each each of these patterns, whether it's one step, two step, three step, or a continuous pattern, all has a Japanese name and hence the the confusion. So a, 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 a kohaku, a white fish with just the red on the head, which most people clearly and easily recognize as the tancho kohaku, is a one-step kohaku. It just has the red on the head. And that's most people, you know, really, they, they recognize that fish as And uh, everybody's looking for a tancho.
Well, I hope everybody might still be listening. Looks like we have a little bit of a technical difficulty um, where I got dropped. My call got dropped. So hopefully we're going to hear back from Ellen in just a little while ago, and I thank you guys for sticking around. I think Ellen's here right now. Yes. Yes, I'm back. Hello. Sorry about that. That's uh, That was just a little bit of a technical difficulty. I got... I got disconnected. I don't think you did. <laughs> so well, I was I waiting, and I just that's fine. Okay. Well, we're back. We're back. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sorry, you were, when I cut off, you were talking about um, the red coloration, how it, um, after the dorsal fin, you want a, a, a break before the dorsal fin with the red color and afterwards. Um, I don't know if you'd mind just continuing on that with uh, how the coloration should be on the fish itself. Can the the color go into the fins? Is that okay with the fish, or preferably should it only be on the body? Preferably only on the body, on a kohaku, and most generally not wrapping below the lateral line. Okay, good. And they're such beautiful fish. Now, what if there was just even a little, a little black spot on it? Would it still be considered kohaku? Um, depending on the size of the black spot, um, a lot of the black spots are considered a it's a shimmy, and um, that you know that is not preferable on a kohaku. But yet, if it's uh, if it is truly a sanki, which is a kohaku, but with addition of black pigment on the body, little you know spots or areas of black sumi coming through. Sometimes you can purchase a kohaku that is actually a sanki and, and it hasn't developed the black yet. So if it, the black is slowly coming in, sometimes you end up with a sanke rather than a kohaku. Okay. Um and like many fish, there's there's other characteristics that uh, kohaku can have um, apart from their color. Their color has to be what it is in order to be considered kohaku. But um, there are long fin or butterfly varieties. There are ginrin and doitsu varieties. Um, is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the butterfly are technically hiranaga is the Japanese term for the butterfly. And um, so you can have a, a hiranaga kohaku. That would mean it's a long fin kohaku. Or then if you, you had mentioned the doits, if it's a scaleless or just has the scales um, along the dorsal line or the spine, that would be considered doitsu. Um, coloration's still the same. It's just the lack of scales on the fish. Make it a doitsu. Um, and then if it has the sparkling diamond scales, those are called guindine scales, and that's the metallic variety. Okay. Yeah, so there's all, all these new varieties that are coming about for the classic kohaku. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my favorites is the, the tancho kohaku, mm-hmm. which I think is just really an amazing pattern with just the circular the red circle um really on its on its head area those mm-hmm. are amazing fish i i do not have one i am always trying to keep my eyes out for a good quality one i see them here and there i don't see a lot of um you know really perfect circle type 
How often do you see those? Um, pattern is random, so you can't you cannot breed just for tancho. So within a kohaku spawn, a percentage will have red exclusive to the head, which means it's a tancho. Now, how well that red is um, placed on the fish's head determines um, the quality or um, um, the value of of that tancho fish. So you can have tancho that are run-of-the-mill, but the, the closer it is to perfection, not reaching the eyes, not too far down on the nose, not going back too far to touch onto the scales, um, how um, symmetrical the spot is, all plays into the quality and the value of the tancho kohaku. Yeah, they're just they're they're very cool fish, and from what I understand, the Japanese enjoy them tremendously because it is representative of their the flag of their country as well. Yes, and also is, the tancho crane, um, which has just the the red cap. Yeah, which I think is their national bird. Mm-hmm. So very very interesting. Did you know? Um, do they have a a national fish? Would it be the koi? <laughs> Would it be the tantra? Probably. Yeah, probably. Um, okay, so so that that's kind of the basics of what you'd be looking for in a kohaku. And we touched on it before. If some sumi st- starts showing up, if some black coloration starts showing up or is on the fish, then you're starting you're starting to look at the sanke variety as long as it's still a white fish with red and black right. markings. Right. Tell as long as the black of- is above the lateral line on the top portion of the fish, then it's a sanke. Okay. And what are some of the things that people should look for if they're if they want to get a good quality sanke? Um, one thing that we haven't touched on at all is confirmation, which um, is a kind of real gets into real technical judging stuff, but you want to make sure that your fish has everything that it's supposed to have. You want, you know, two fins, you know, two peck fins, two barbels. A lot of people don't realize that they have two sets of little whiskers called barbels, two eyes, and that they're they're not deformed. The face isn't blunt or um, caved in or too pointy. Um, and so first off, when you're looking at fish, you want to look at the confirmation and make sure the fish has everything it's supposed to and is a nice shape and it's not deformed. It doesn't have any form of scoliosis or um, uh, fault, you know, in in its body shape or, or the, um, the skeletal form, which if it had some kind of a... De- um, deformity you could see that visually so that's the first thing you want to look at and then when you are um, evaluating sanke you again you want a nice clean white base on the fish because that's you know considered the canvas of what the other colors are on so you want a nice clean bright white shiroji base on your sanke then you want to look for a nice pleasant um, kohaku pattern of the he or the red or the orange coloration. You want a nice, pleasing pattern that starts at the face 
and breaks along the way and ends right before the tail. Then you want on the um, an addition of the black or sumi on a on a sanke. And ideally on a sanke it should not have any black on the head or the face. The black okay. should start on the shoulder and continue throughout the body in small blotches or um, the sanke can also have black stripes in the pec fins and occasionally in the dorsal fin and the caudal fin or the tail fin. Okay. Now, if there is more black than red, is that does that make any difference in the desirability of a fish from, let's say, a, a show point of view? I know as, as just a, a hobbyist, whatever kind of pleases your eye is most important, but... If you're mm-hmm. looking at it from that perspective, um, what is kind of the the thoughts on that? The rule of thumb is you don't the uh, the the sumi is supposed to be an accent color on the sanke, where if you have a lot of big patches of sumi, then you're going to blend into a showa. You then you end up looking at a different fish rather than the sanke. Right. And sanke, I think, is what many hobbyists would consider the kind of the classic-looking koi, the three-color white with red and black. Um, mm-hmm. That, to, to me as well, has always been when you when if somebody can conjure up a picture of koi, that would probably be the first thing that that kind of comes to people's minds with that. So they're they're really beautiful, classic-looking fish, and. Um, you know, if you if they are breeding in your pond, if it is sanke, you can you can of course get other sanke, but you can get kohaku from the spawn as well, uh, if I understand that correctly. And I think, can you get showa from them also? Depends. Not so much showa. Um, you would get more beko, which would be just the white fish with black spots, along okay. with sankes and kohaku. Okay. So those are both the the white fish in the in the gosanke. Um anything you want to add in regards to the sanke varieties? What people might want to consider and what they should look for? The position of the black needs to be on the top of the fish above the lateral line. Now the lateral line is the line that runs from the gill all the way all the way to the tail on each side of the fish, and that's actually a sensory organ on the fish. And that's what's considered the lateral line. You want the on a sanke, you want the black to be above the lateral line, starting on the shoulder. And balance is not so much important on your black on a sanke, um, as long as it's a pleasing pattern. Okay. And then when it comes to showa. That is not a white fish. That is the the only black fish of the Kosanke, of the big three. Um, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about Showa. Um, showa is predominantly pigmented fish. It's it's a, lot, a heavy um, black and red patterns um, with a smaller portion of white areas on the fish. Um, the black should start on the face and continue all the way through the body, 
um, completely. Um, and that's one clear definition between a sanke and a showa is if there's black on the face or the head. The black is also in larger patches. And the okay. black also wraps down around the sides of the fish. Rather than sitting on the top, like on a sanke, it sits up on the top of the back. On a showa, it's big black patches that wrap completely around the fish. That's that's the way to tell the difference between a sanke and a showa. Okay. Um, I had heard that the showa can also be identified because the interior of their mouth will be black as well. Is there any truth to that, or is that kind of a, a legend? No, that there is some truth to that, but not all um, Showa will have that, particularly the Kindai Showa, which is predominantly white fish with smaller black and smaller red um, areas. They don't, they don't show that as often as a traditional old-style Showa. Okay. Show, I love the showa. Those actually are, are probably a big song. It's, it's hard to really have a favorite. Um, I was about to say it would be my favorite, but then Kohaku jumped to mine, and it's just it's very hard to really choose a favorite. But the showa, to me, really are they're very beautiful, really showy mm-hmm. fish. I love the uh, I love the black in them. I just love the way they they look. That that deep sumi is just uh, amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, and with all of these, their their patterns uh, within all the go sanke, their patterns can change over time as as they grow. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're not set patterns necessarily. So what you see as a tosai will change over a period of their over their lifetime. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and like I was saying earlier, um, when a lot of times you'll buy a kohaku, a young kohaku that doesn't have any sumi yet, sometimes it takes two, three, or four years for the sumi to come up and be developed and be what they refer to as finished. So, um, you know, it's, it's ever-changing. Uh, the kohaku usually doesn't lose or um, or the red doesn't change. Sometimes it'll break and spread apart a little bit or the white areas may become a little more um, predominant um, in between the red patches. Um, but they don't change quite as much as the other fish where they have more than, you know, just the two colors. Okay. Are there anything that um, koi hobbyists can do to let's say they have a pattern that they really enjoy on their fish can can people fix a pattern on the fish or is it really just a matter of time and seeing what happens with the fish um it's usually a waiting game although um harder water does bring out the black um it helps helps to develop the black quicker okay so with all of these fish, you can you can manipulate their color their color to a certain degree, um, and and their patterns I guess to a certain degree by manipulating water parameters. Water parameters and um, a color enhancing feed. You can bring out the reds with a color a good color enhancing feed. Okay. Now, are there foods that will encourage a certain color more than another? Um, yes, the, the, the color enhancers are usually 
formulated to bring out the red coloration in fish. Um, feeds that ha- don't have as much coloration or um, color additives like spirulina, uh, some of the um, cooler weather feeds um, help to enhance the whites of the fish. Okay, good. Good to know. And um, and all of these, we mentioned it about the Kohaku, but all of these do come in those different varieties that you mentioned before, Um the long fin, the butterfly, doitsu, all of these can come in those those sub-varieties. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Which makes it so interesting. It's There's always something new seemingly coming out um, as far as different varieties of koi and uh, their presentations. What What do you think should be the, once somebody is, is comfortable with, Gosaki, what are some of the next varieties that people should consider? If they're using Gosaki as kind of their their introductory uh, platform into getting to know koi and collecting koi, what would be some of the next varieties that people should start focusing on without uh, in taking small bites and without getting too overwhelmed by uh, by all the different koi that are available? Um, probably any of the varieties in Hikari Muji class. Those are single color, single colored metallic varieties. So their skin is metallic, but yet they have just one color. And those are pretty easy for people to um, identify and remember, um, and they're able to pick them out in, in a in a in, if they're looking at a whole selection of fish, they're pretty easy to identify because it's, you don't have a pattern that you have to worry about naming correctly. Um, it, they're, they're a lot easier to to understand and remember. Yeah, even visually, they're just so easy to recognize. And when you mm-hmm. talk about the, mm-hmm. the metallic quality of a fish, um, for, for people who aren't really familiar with with what you mean by that, how would you uh, describe uh, what it means to have a metallic koi? When I I say metallic, I'm talking about the skin of the fish. It has a metallic luster, um, and the only way I can really describe that is if you the luster is comparable to, say, satin material. It has a shine, it has a thickness, it has a heaviness to it, and that's what is referred to as luster. And it's, so the metallic varieties have a luster. Yeah, which are so cool. I, I enjoy the metallic varieties tremendously. They're really beautiful fish. I enjoy the uh, ginrin, uh, from pronouncing that right as well. I love how the water, uh, how the sun just kind of sparkles off those fish in the water. You know, if they're down a little bit and you can't see that well, you just see these flecks of light reflecting back to you. So there's so mm-hmm. many great ways to enjoy even just these three, the, the big three. There's so many ways to enjoy them um, incorporated into and with other characteristics that are being bred. Is there anything out there that you've seen that's coming 
out in the koi world that uh, maybe has not really hit the mainstream yet that you're excited about? Any new varieties on the horizon? Um, I think the Benny Kinkiko Kudrus are one of the they're one of our favorite varieties, um, and they're gaining a lot more um, popularity and recognition in koi shows because. Um, they're a Deutz fish. They're a metallic base. Um, they have interesting patterns and colors, and they're just people just love them. They're just very cool and they're neat looking, um, and they really stand out. Um, they a lot of times have a very um, voluptuous body. <laughs> you know, they're 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 usually nice and thick um, and strong looking. Yeah. Cool. So that's something to keep an eye out for. Do you guys breed Chagoy? Yes, we do breed Chagoy. That's like a brown fish. fish. Yeah. Yep. It's it's a very basic fish, but they're they're awesome. I kind of like the basic quality to it, and they're so friendly. <laughs> it's, they're like actually really nice fish. Um, not that any koi are, are mean, but. It's funny. I've just mm-hmm. noticed that in dealing with so many fish, Chagoy are definitely one of my favorites. So very interesting. The, it, it'll be interesting. The Chagoy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The Chagoy. The Chagoy can come in a variety of of um, colors, from kind of a green khaki to a nice root beer color to just a pure brown color. So even though it's they're all Chagoy which is a one-color, non-metallic brown koi. Um, there is some variation in that. And they are always known as the friendliest koi. Um, they're usually the first ones that will feed train. And usually if you have a chagoy in your collection that will feed train, they really help to teach the other fish how to feed train and not be afraid of, of their, their keepers. Yeah which is a benefit to have in your pond, especially if you really want that experience of that, that the relationship that people can really get with koi. And that's something when I'm talking to people who are considering getting into the hobby or maybe who are just brand new to it, a lot of people don't realize that you really can get, and I can say this to you because you get it, <laughs> you can have a relationship mm-hmm. with, your, with your koi. Um, they certainly can become pets and parts of the family and be around for a long, long time. And uh, it's really it's really amazing. It'll be exciting to see what the future holds for, for koi in general, just as a hobby. I mean, there's so much, it seems, going on in the industry and new varieties being developed and all sorts of cool stuff happening. So it'll be interesting to see what you guys have coming out as well. Do you have anything coming up that you want to let people know about? Um, we let's see. This year we will have a lot of Deutz varieties available. The um, Sankes and Showas available in Deutz variety. That's really um, exciting for us because we um, are some of the breeder fish that we had bought um, several years ago have finally reached maturity where we could breed them, and and uh, so we'll have those available. That's exciting. Yeah. Cool. And you're going to have pictures of them so people can see what they're actually buying on your website, which is com. 
Yes. Yes, and I would like to mention, too, on the website, we have a page called Ellen's Koi Education, which um, for your listeners who um, are interested in learning about the different varieties, you can go there and see uh, artist illustrations of each of the varieties and learn over time and um you know, you can learn the the phonetic pronunciations and become more familiar with the different varieties. Yeah, and that's a great resource to have. Um, your your website is actually full of uh, all sorts of information. Um, there's, I'm looking at your website right now. Helen's Koi Education, Myron's Koi Care, um, all sorts of great stuff. And you guys also sell. Um, pond supplies. You sell food and and filter supplies. You sell. I mean, you guys are really full service as far mm-hmm. as um, koi and the the different products. Yes, yes, we are. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, if you want to sign up for their mailing list, go to clobetkoi.com and right along the top, you can join their their mailing list to uh, get special deals and specials and koi keeping tips. And um, Ellen. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. I really appreciate your your expertise and sharing that with everybody and taking the time on this cold evening <laughs> to uh to be on the show with me. I, I thank you so much for doing that. Sure, I always love talking about Koi. Yes, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Thanks and for having me. The technical issue, but uh we made it through. Thank you so much, Ellen. Have a great night, and I will look forward to speaking with you in the future, and I'm sure I will see you around. All right. Thank you. Good night. Have a very good night. That was Ellen Klobeck, everybody, from Klobeck Koi, who are uh, breeders, farmers, and Ellen is a koi expert, farmer, breeder, educator. And if you're not running into Ellen at your local koi show, you can catch up with her on Facebook, Twitter, and as we were just talking about, the Klobeck Koi Farm website, klobeckkoi.com, K-L-O-U-B-E-C-K-O-I, klobeckkoi.com. They have a really cool website loaded with info. You can find their koi auctions on eBay. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, talking about koi like this makes my spring fever just a few degrees higher I'm so ready for spring. I'm so ready to see my koi again. Um, I do hope that as we thaw into the spring season that all of you really enjoyed the winter season. I've been saying for all of these winter shows that winter is still a good time to enjoy your ponds. Um, you guys don't have to be stuck in, indoors looking out. The winter behavior of pond fish is interesting. The transformation of the pond into a frozen state, waterfall and all, is uh, something we can only marvel at for a very brief time and being able to see how many of our ponds turn into lifelines to local wildlife is really cool birds squirrels um, many varieties of big and small animals can come to depend on our ponds as their source of water during winter when other water supplies are locked up in ice and uh, I personally really enjoyed my pond this winter but winter seems to be kind of hanging around a little too long Um, so I'm ready Spring brings a whole new dimension to our ponds, and that is going to be the focus of our next show. The next PHRB will be on spring pond care. My guest is going to be Jason Turpin from Turpin Pond Source, and I hope you guys are all going to 
tune into that. Um, I do have some announcements that I skipped in the earlier part of the program. The Koi Club of San Diego has their annual Koi Show and Water Garden Exposition scheduled for March 7th and 8th, just coming up real soon. This is going to be their 28th annual Koi Show. Man, I would love to be there for that. San Diego, come on, man. It's taking place at the Del Mar Fairgrounds in San Diego, and if you've never been to a Koi Show, i got to believe San Diego would be a not too bad of a place to get your feet wet. Tickets are available. Uh, to learn more, go to KoiClubOfSanDiego.org. And also, the Central Florida Koi Show is happening, too, in March, March 13th through 15th at the International Palms Resort in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Another great warm spot. Might still be cold in a lot of areas. Might be good to get away. At least by March, it should be warm again. And this is another cool show to check out. This is a show for several area koi clubs. And let's not forget the goldfish. There's going to be a goldfish show, too. Goldfish are way underrated. Um, I love goldfish. This should be a great show. To learn more about the Central Florida Koi Show, visit centralfloridakoishow.org. Another show I'd love to be at. So mark your calendars, folks, and get ready for pond season um, coming up soon. And a quick shout-out to all the pond pros making things happen out in Shawnee, Oklahoma at the Water Garden Expo. Uh, Wish I was out there with you guys, having fun, networking, learning. And a shout-out to the Pond Stars um, who've begun shooting another season. Season two is underway for the Pond Stars. I can't wait to see what they have coming up. I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to have, the amazing projects and and all the fun. What a what a great show. I, I can't wait to see that again. Um, so all of you can find more of The Pond Hunter on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and of course, please give me a follow if you're connecting with me on iTunes or Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio slash The Pond Hunter. And my name is Mike Cannon. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Cold winter evening. And uh, I will see you all next time on The Pond Hunter Radio broadcast. And until then, keep the pondy, everybody. You have been listening to the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, the Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. That's right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Good night.